0: I don't know how many weeks ago was that there? I was preaching several weeks ago and it just came to me. So I said it and I said, Hey, you know, God has a sense of humor. Uh, Why do you think there's farts? I, I, I don't I don't know there you go. I just said it and you're laughing. I don't know anybody I don't know anybody who doesn't laugh at a fart no everybody laughs. we don't appreciate it when it's somebody else's fart and it's in my house but we all we all laugh and I think for churchy people or just serious minded people, that kind of thinking is so weird and i I just want to say no, it's weird that you can't see the hard wiring that we all have for humor and play. We've got to embrace it. Welcome to the aggressive life, Dirt. We're gonna have some fun today. I cannot wait for this one. It has been a long time, long, long time coming. Long time yeah. coming. We have worked on getting this guest for a long uh, time. Years, I think. Years. Yeah, it's it's not that often I have a guest who I could tell him, as I just did before we started recording, is that you're one of the few people who've who've actually changed my life. That's right. Yeah, totally. Changed my life. Anybody on my downline, their life has changed because this man's work and his messages uh, run a deep, deep, refreshing spring of life through my life. If you've listened to this podcast, uh, you've heard me at one point bring up the work and research of our guest. He's been incredibly influential in a lot of folks' lives. His name is Dr. Stuart Brown. He's the founder of the National Institute for Play. I just love that. National Institute for Play. He's dedicated his professional career to studying play and its importance in our lives. He dives into questions like what actually makes an activity play? How does play act, act, actually influence our health and well-being? And what happens when play is suppressed? His Findings are life-changing, and they have been life-changing for me. My day job is a pastor, and when I got into the role, I was nose to the grindstone for years, long hours, hard days, lots of stress. In fact, I felt like if I wasn't stressed and I wasn't putting in ridiculous hours, in fact, if I thought that if I actually took time off and actually smiled, that something must be wrong with me because maybe I wasn't fully leveraging all of my time. That's how I operated for a long time. And a number of events collided to completely shift my perspective, including and maybe even saying instigated by this man's work in research. Um, I could talk more about his work, but instead we'll have him talk. He wrote the landmark bestseller play, How It Changes the Brain, Opens the Imagination, and Invigorates the Soul. He's been... uh Teaching on play at Stanford, he's had prestigious stages from TED to New York Academy of Sciences to the Olympics, yada, 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 yada. Dr. Brown, he believes we are built to play and built by play, so let's play with him today. Dr. Stuart Brown, come out to play. How are you? You
1: know, uh, after that introduction, what got, what have I got to say? All I know
0: is <laughs> that you've got a little play in your soul—that's for sure. <laughs> well, it takes one to know one, I guess. Let me tell you a little bit how we got. Int- I got introduced to your work because I—I think I ran across. I don't remember what interview it was, but it was so mesmerizing to me. And I was really challenged by how I was looking at my life. And maybe we could go back. Just tell your story, Stuart, how you started this. What were the seminal moments? Just, just give us a little bit of your story and, and play.
1: Okay. Well, you know, I'm an old guy. We may go on for quite a while. But uh, <laughs> back in 1966, I had had training in internal medicine had just finished the residency in psychiatry, was mesmerized by the uh, big medical center in Houston, uh, was an assistant professor of psychiatry when on August 1st, 1966, a 25-year-old ex-Eagle Scout, ex-Marine, climbed the University of Texas Tower in Austin with an armory after he had killed his wife and mother, wounded, Uh, 32, killed 14 more, and uh, since I was freshly minted as a professor, my boss and the governor of Texas organized a a commission to try and understand why this young man who was killed in, in vigilante crossfire on the top of the tower as he finished this tragedy, trying to figure out why in the world a guy with no history of legal problems, and with an architectural engineering major married to a a town sweetheart, why would somebody do this? And I thought to myself when I was appointed to this commission, uh, having had a training in psychiatry where it's hard enough to figure out when somebody's in the office alive, telling you about their story it's hard enough to figure out what's going on with them with everything going for you here's a dead young man uh, and not available for an interview but could we figure it out so for the next uh, number of months uh, with a lot of funding this was then the largest mass murder in the united states so there's a tremendous amount of interest in it so we got people from all over, the head of neurosurgery at Harvard. We went into tremendous depth, the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology studying his brain. Uh, We had a team that went back to Florida where he was from and even went to his father's orphanage where his father had (laughs) been raised in order to find out uh, as much as we could. So this was an immense in-depth study of one human being which... Uh, before, since I don't think we've done this level of uh, interviewing and depth. So at the end of this, at, at, when we made our report to the governor of Texas and to the Commission on Mental Health and Mental Hygiene of the State of Texas, we had a consensus that the suppression of play itself, hmm. young man whose name was Charles Whitman, by his very disturbed, overbearing. Father had meant that he did not gain the resiliency and the ability to deal with hidden violent impulses. He had been an observer, he, Charles Whitman, had been an observer of brutality and abuse in the family perpetrated by his father, but his external persona was uh, a golden boy. He was the youngest Eagle Scout in the history of the United States when he was less than 13 years old in Florida. So this opened my eyes, and a really brilliant uh, child psychiatrist from Southwestern uh, Dallas Medical School said to me while we were interviewing his pediatrician, uh, Charles Whitman's pediatrician, if only he had played. <laughs> as, as as this uh, commission ended its... Tenure, I got a grant to study uh, homicidal individuals in the state of Texas prison system with whom we matched 350, there were 26 of them, we matched them with 350 uh, as close po- as possible uh, cohorts. And lo and behold, the play histories of the homicidal males, or a wide variety of individuals incarcerated in Texas, the play histories were very different than the matched uh, controls. Hmm. That in 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 nineteen sixty seven, kind of opened my eyes that something's going on here in human violence that seems to be associated with play deficiency.
0: Yeah, you mentioned one one of your things. I've heard you say is that study was the thing that people you discovered was that all the people who are uh, mass murderers on death row. All of them had an absence of rough play as a child, right? Yeah. We, what we found, I asked about playground play and rough and
1: tumble play, which by then, uh, was evident was a a normal part of the trajectory of play of most human beings and the homicidal individuals were either isolated or abusive and bullies or some some abnormal uh playground activity, so that they did not engage in the normal give and take that happens in a in a playground in a setting that is gets allows normal play, such as open recess does, so that there's a huge amount uh, at least we felt at that time, and it's been reinforced many, many times since, that the process of rough and tumble play is how we learn to take our lumps and not give them, how we learn empathy to some degree, and how we learn to win and lose and who we are. But the homicidal individuals, by and large, had highly deprived childhoods so that they did not have the skills or the opportunity to engage in rough-and-tumble play. So that's a good question.
0: You you mentioned something earlier that, just for me went ding, ding, ding. Let me give you a little bit about my story and then have you see if this holds water. I'm a, I'm a pastor by day. I pastor a very large church, and therefore I hang out with people who are similar, and anybody who reads the newspapers know that pastors end up having moral failings and doing stupid things and being disqualified and kicked out of ministry for all the appropriate reasons they should. I, I've been around long enough, and I know enough of those folks or know people who know those people to be able to do some anecdotal research on my own. And I found the two things that all pastors who have a moral failing have in common is one, they have no friends inside the church, like deep abiding friendship inside the church. And two is they have no life-giving hobbies. Those two things i found are always present with someone who falls. Now, it's fascinating. If I just heard you properly, you're saying that that mass shooter uh, and maybe generally all mass shooters have two things, loneliness and lack of play. Is, is that what you're saying?
1: I'm saying that what we found was when you analyze their entire life cycle, life cycle the differences between the homicide and non-homicide individuals often showed more evidence of lack of play, in the homicidal individuals by far, and in the uh, so-called normal controls. What you've said, it alerts me about pastors who have had a failing and lots of others that I saw in my clinical practice who, who had either moral or personal crises, is that the toll that lack of play takes on any of us is is a quantitative almost measurable process that's quite similar and or at least parallel to lack of sleep Ah, you're going to be hard to get along with you're going to have car accidents you're not going to be uh personable well this is a biological need of human beings and it's part of how we're designed as human beings which is to include playfulness
0: Even under life circumstances which are very, very trying and very difficult, I love these lines that you've had. You said, "I'm I'm writing them down." Uh, The suppression of play, the toll of lack of play. It's really, um, what's the word? What's the phrase when two phrases go together that shouldn't like jumbo shrimp, government service, oxymoron. That's what you know. Uh, Suppression and play total of lack of play, these, these things don't go together, yet your research indicates they do. And before we go further in that, uh, Stuart, let's just define play. You've got, you've got about eight things, eight different types of play, because I want to help people see what we could be talking about here. Play is probably not gaming, Play is probably not just skipping rope, but it could be. You've got a a bunch of different sectors here. How about if I read these off? These are different categories, types of play. Um, And if you could describe what each of these are for us. Does that sound fair? It'll it'll be a challenge, but uh, go for it. (laughs) All right. So (laughs) these are the ones you have. So all of our listeners, we're probably um, going to – be drawn to one of these categories of play. One of them, you say, is the collector. What is the collector?
1: You know, let's let's start a little bit different. Okay. If if we were to look at play itself, that begins in the human life cycle, the social smile between a, a mother and infant, for example, and the mutual joy that happens when they look at each other and smile and start baby talk and laughing and all that means that play is hardwired Ah, into all of us. That's good. So then how does that manifest itself later on in life? Well, if what you like to do is collect four-leaf clovers, or, uh, you know, as the executive director of the National Institute for Play likes to do, he likes to collect photographs, or Jay Leno likes to collect cars, you're play personality or your play pattern that you prefer is collecting. And that mm-hmm. gives you a sense of g- gleefulness
0: that you already had when your mom looked at you when you were a little infant. And so for you, does that mean, like, I'm, I, don't, I don't think I'm the collector, but what is it? Is it the hunt? Is it the search? I mean, what, what's making you smile is that, as a form of play?
1: If, if you look at kids, they have different temperaments. Mm. And the temperament itself uh infuses the play nature that's already there, so it so then you go out in the environment and if if you're a collector, instead of listening to the birds sing you're gonna you're gonna want to collect as Jane Goodall did when she was a little kid you're gonna collect worms and and be a you're gonna do something that's related to your temperament and your nature if you're given the chance. Now, a lot of kids are over-organized from the very beginning by their mother or father says they want you to be a ballerina or a lawyer or a doctor, you know, or a pastor. And <laughs> and so you don't necessarily have a sense of freedom to follow your bliss and to, do, to follow your play nature
0: as it is infused by your temperament. All right. Cool. Okay. I would not call myself a collector, but I could see how for the right personality wiring, that would be great. Same with this next one, uh, which is the competitor. I would not call myself – I actually would say I'm somewhat competitive, but competition would not be the way I play. But what is, what is the competitor? What kind of play is that?
1: Well, let, let's take uh, somebody like Tom Brady – uh, I think he likes just winning, mm. and he's here he is you know in his forties, still doing it, or at least he was till he uh semi retired and Serena Williams, for example, a tennis player, she likes to complete compete, so there are people for whom it isn't just winning or certainly not necessarily dominating others, it's just the act of competition that is gives them joyfulness gets them into what I would call their own personal state of play, which is a separate state from all others. And, uh, you know, we're not all, what we're talking, when you talk about collectors or competitors, this is not a scientific delineation. This is a description and we can all be mixes
0: i kind of wish i would have had this discussion with you about 10 days ago because my buddy uh steve who's known to me as log it's one of his nicknames we went away on an an elk hunt that's the kind of way i play i give people nicknames they don't like that's the way i play but we went away on this uh, elk hunt and he uh, he said okay i could tell he was in this competition mode of who's going to get the biggest elk and it just kind of started to stress me out like hey man we never even see an elk why don't you have you have a competition where who gets the biggest? <laughs> we do elk hiking, not elk hunting. And and I said to him, I said, "Hey man, you know, just I know you like to compete with me, but I'm not competing with you because it actually starts stressing me out. Now I realize though, when you talk about this, that's a form of play for him. He's always like into, hey, let's see you can throw the pine cone closest to the tree. Yeah, You're not right. I mean, that's what gives him a sense of joyfulness
1: yep. and pleasure. So that's his his preferred play pattern. He probably can also play dance and hike and do other things that are enjoyable, but it sounds
0: like his first instinct is to compete. Yeah, that's a good one. I like it. Okay, then you have those of us who are creator slash artist. What's that? Well, if if you're Michelangelo and you're
1: wandering in northern Italy and you see a uh, white marble tiller in the in the cliff side instead of seeing the white marble you see you see david the the statue because you're an artist and that's a part of of what you see and you know the artists that i have interviewed and and have known in my life they're people who frame their their views of the world with artistic eyes they see form and shape and you know it's uh, et cetera so uh, You know, Picasso undoubtedly saw different things than his peers did, and, and therefore made artistic history. And Michelangelo, uh, you know, from the Sistine Chapel on, is you know, was an artist deep in his soul, and probably yeah. found it playful. We don't know
0: because he'd been gone for a while. How about the director, which is another category of ours, of yours? I don't. I have a, a grandson.
1: Uh, who when he was an infant and was in daycare would basically move all the chairs into a certain pattern and then make everybody sit in them and he is still <laughs> somewhat he's now uh, you know finishing up his college career but, <laughs> but that's still part of his playful personality and <clears throat> i think you know one of the people that i haven't don't know her personally at all but
0: Oprah seems to me to be a, a director. Oh, that's my oldest daughter. We call, actually call my oldest daughter the program director. Yeah, she's <laughs> she's having games where people sit on chairs as a bus conductor way back when. And even today, we call her the program director because for family vacations, <laughs> she just plans it. Like, okay, you handle that. It's fun for her.
1: Yeah, yeah that's good. Well, I was just thinking, I've got a, I've got a daughter who... You know, instead of on a family trip, pretty soon you got an itinerary <laughs> from five in the
0: morning till midnight because that's who she is. Yeah, <clears throat> that's right. We need those folks. At least I do. Uh, how about the Explorer? I think this one's probably me. What's the Explorer? Well, I would say there, there are two people
1: that in my lifetime have you know, typified the Explorer. And the first that comes to mind is Jane Goodall. Because here she was, you know, uh, uh, not a college-educated person, wanting to go to Africa because she loved wildlife and animals, gets to Africa, gets to know Lewis Leakey. Lewis Leakey gets a grant for her. She then goes and lives with the chimpanzees as an explorer to find out for the first time that uh, chimpanzees are tool users and that human beings are not the only ones who are – well, she's – definitely an explorer and then uh, a Nobel laureate uh, who taught me physiology in medical school Roger Guillemin was studying brains and Roger found that the veins that drain the portion of the brain called the hypothalamus are too big for what would normally drain that portion of the of the brain and he figured and tried to figure out what's going on well he discovered that the that portion of the brain releases what are called releasing factors and ends up with the Nobel Prize for discovering releasing factors because he noticed that the vein was too big and didn't quite fit the normal physiology. He's an explorer of a different sort. Hmm. Then, but, you know, I would I would label him as a an innovative explorer. So those are just two. Examples that come to mind,
0: and that seems closely related to this other category. Which I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it wrong. I am an educated man, but every once in a while, I see when your words are like what kinesthete, k i n e K-i-n-e-s-t-h-e? s t a t kinesthete kinesthete. Of course, of course, kinesthete. Yes, or dirt. Well,
1: well yeah. that, that's a you know kind of a, a a word that's probably not in the dictionary. But anyhow, <laughs> that's the person who. uh is only you know i think of the first thought i have is you know maybe macarthur the general when he was uh, planning a battlefield always had to walk to think so he would move and think at the same time and i think there are people we know who are are bodily active all the time those are the kids yeah. and they are that's their play and that's their their you know i'm i like to bike and hike even at my advanced age so i think part of me is has got the kinesthete, and that's where i came up with the word
0: yeah i might have said that for myself but I think I'm actually the explorer. So I'm a big adventure motorcyclist. I'm a I'm a be, I'm becoming a big hunter. And when you're riding a bike off road, some guys just like to ride all the difficult terrain. I like to feel like I'm making progress, going one place to another. I don't want to ride in circles. When I hunt, Mm -hmm. I just took down an elk for my the the first um, bull elk I've ever taken down, six by six. Yeah, it was pretty cool. And uh, I actually was a little bummed with the hunt because the way it came down, I didn't feel like I was exploring prior to taking it down. It wasn't the act of pulling the trigger and taking it. Right. It was the hunt. And I, I didn't have long enough of an exploration process. So I, I'm probably more of an explorer than the kinesthetic. That's that's interesting. Well, it sounds like you're, you
1: combined, uh, you know, there's something in nature when you are immersed in nature and involved with animals in nature that I think – speaks very deeply to the human condition. And I don't know if it's strictly playful, but it triggers often a lot of our play nature if we're open to being triggered. And that's an important element for all of us as adults is to be open to those triggers that give us a sense of playfulness and joy.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're right. There is something primal about nature. There, There is. But by the same token, as it relates to play, I'm never saying, hey, I want to go on a nature walk and just talk with God. I, I wouldn't be against that, but I wouldn't be drawn to that as a form of play.
1: Well, you're, you know? you're exemplifying something that's really important, which is for all of us, particularly as adults, is to find what it is that works for us, that gives us this sense of freedom, of being involved in something for its own sake of going to the next you know if you're hunting elk and you're deciding you're going to become a more master hunter than you were the last time then to me that's part of what the play nature does is increase the level of excellence Mm. in what you're doing because it engages you and the engagement itself is playful
0: when we When I heard you speak one time, you were taking up the hobby or learning a new discipline of riding a motorcycle, which I thought interesting. that's actually what got me started into play is I was uh, in a group with a bunch of men were meeting together every week to support each other, and some guys said hey we should uh, we should go out to Vegas, rent a motorcycle." put our wives in the back of the motorcycles and cruise around out west for a few days. And I thought that was the biggest waste of time and money I could have ever thought of. I was building something. I was I was on on task of something I needed to get done. And I thought it was a complete waste of time. And I, But I thought, ah, okay, I'll go do it. We're, I'm in this group with these men. Fine, I'll take one for the team. And I found out in day two or so, day two or three, I had this dawning understanding as we drove by the Grand Canyon that, oh my goodness, for two or three days, I haven't thought about my day job one time, not at all. And then when I came home, I had a flurry of creative ideas that took my career path to the next level because a trace to that thing of play that was right around when I found you and you had said, Hey, I'm taking up motorcycling. And I don't, I don't know what, how old you were then, but I I thought, wow, why why would you take up motorcycling and what's that to do with play in your situation?
1: Hey, what you just described is as good a clinical description of the outcome of, of a play state as I've ever heard and that is that it raises your innovative capabilities it gives you the freedom to try something new that you wouldn't have done otherwise even though the motorcycling itself appeared purposeless it appeared purposeless but it wasn't it was engaging you in your play state and you described the uh, the outcome which is there for all of us. You know, our talents are going to be more manifest if we find that we're getting into a state of play. I like that raises
0: your play state. That's good. I I read about these people who seem to be Titans of industry and they talk about, and I'm, I'm talking about they actually say this, you know, they work 80 hours a week and they don't take a day off and that's the way they've always been. And I listen to that and part of me goes, I guess there's just some superhuman people out there. And then the other part of me says, calls bullshit and says, no, I'm sorry. No, you can't you can't be an industry leader and have breakthroughs if you're working all the time. Am I right, wrong? What's your thoughts? Well, you know, I I had the opportunity
1: to, interview a bunch of Nobel laureates uh, with a production I was involved in called The Soul of the Universe. And uh, there was a variation. There were Nobelists who didn't know the difference between work and play, and uh, if they were doing physics or, or medicine or economics, uh, it was playful for them. Then there were grinders. And the grinders Still got things done, but they weren't much fun to interview mm. and the I think the uh, the illusion uh, of a lawyer who stays up all night to prepare for his his or her speech is not going to do as well as the one who goes to bed at nine o'clock and wakes up fresh yes, so you know I think the the illusion of the uh, 80 hour a week workaholic is just that. It's an illusion. The objective studies of playfulness, particularly in play deprived animals that are maze learning and things like that, and versus play active animals that are maze learning, indicate that there's a different brain in the players than there is in the non-players. And I think that applies. Well, we, we can't do that kind of study for humans ethically but it applies to us and, and makes sense. In your description of, of your motorcycle ride, I, I wish we, we should write that up because that's that's a adult play.
0: Adult play. Yeah, well, um, what I liked about it, people say to me, well, isn't that dangerous? And um, I go like, uh, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's the whole yeah. point. <laughs> And and you said that you're taking up uh, uh, motorcycle riding at a later age because you realized that it forced you to focus and distracted your brain. Am I putting words in your mouth? Is that what you why you had gotten into that? I, th- I think the uh, impulse, which is now long gone
1: since I'm ninety, but the impulse to to uh, be involved in motorcycling came from a fellow by the name of Frank Wilson, who's a neurologist retired from stanford and frank came roaring into my national institute for play setting in carmel valley one day and i said frank you rode all the way down here from the bay area oh he said man this is really good for my brain he said i have to be alert i'm right on and so uh and he was a neurologist who was had written a book called the hand a very Influential in my thinking, and that from then on, I had the opportunity. Mostly, what I did in motorcycling was back seat. Yeah, <laughs> not not front seat. Yeah,
0: but you're recognizing that's that's your description of the state of play. Your mind is taken to another place, right?
1: Absolutely. One of the things you mentioned about play, play and risk tend to go together, although it's graduated, understandable uh, risk that is not excessive. And the thing that kids who are involved from early age in, in, in mutual sharing and rough and tumble play are taking gradually increasing risks that they can absorb and deal with. And the ability not to then take excessive risk when you're driving a car or doing something when you get a little older is modified by progressive uh, understanding of what play does and how it's required a a learning curve uh, from youth on up, from infancy on up.
0: Yeah, I want to guard against being yet another aging person who thinks people who are younger don't have the smarts that I did when I was younger or have a misguided experience. But, but I will say this, it seems like my peers and I, in a younger version, we were taking more playful risks. We were building tree houses. We were we were putting jumps over things on our bicycles. We were going to the emergency room. I, I talked with a young parent the other day and said they had to take their kid to the emergency room for stitches. And I went, oh, wait, you, you what? I said, I haven't heard of that for a long time. It was very common, broken bones, stitches. And I just said, hey, whatever you're doing with your son, well done, well done, he's actually getting out and playing. Um, Do you think that the younger generations are playing in a different way and uh, to their personal and emotional turmoil? Oh, gosh, yes. Uh, Peter Gray, who is a a colleague
1: of ours in play, has written as a senior author for the American Journal of Pediatrics and came out in July, where he talks about the locus of control – that is lost when kids don't engage in normal play behavior, which is risk taking. And what do they say? Is it better to have a broken arm than a broken spirit? Mm. You know that that the uh, evidence for the upswing and depression and suicidality and the correlations are. We're getting better and better data that. Uh, the correlations about some of the absence of play and the presence of childhood mental health problems are becoming very, very solid. And I read, I guess yesterday, I I was looking at a series of articles, and they said that the average uh, middle schooler spends nine hours a day on screen with a phone. And that you can't possibly know as an adult, what it's like to be a kid with nine hours a day on a screen when you were out uh, jumping off garage roofs and, and, uh, you know, doing all kinds of free play. That's now not as common. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Before let's, let's stay there for a moment before we talk about your final two categories is that one of the things that I don't see in any of your lists are things like slot machines or gaming. I don't see those forms of play. And then you just mentioned here absence of play and mental health. I, I, I just wonder if, because I've been scratching my head, Stuart, forever as a pastor. It's like bipolar and, and mental illness. It honestly is like the Black Plague just broke out. I mean, it wasn't a thing, and then all of a sudden, like people are catching it, like they catch the flu in the last several years. Like the whole mental illness discussion, I keep asking people, where did this come from? I'm not that there's there's always been people who have mental challenges, but not to the degree to we have right now. We don't. We don't. We've never seen men's health men's health life expectancy on the decrease like it is right now. It's I don't I can't figure out what it is. So I'm asking people, is it is it the hormones? our foods? Is it the, I? I don't know. But it's interesting not to go. I is it really as simple as we we don't play anymore, and so we don't do these forms of play, and our neurochemistry is is stagnant or it's boiling over from all the mundane. Ta- I don't know. I'm just I'm just trying to f- serve you up softballs and say, is there anything here? What do you think?
1: Uh, you know, I I think it's a cut. you you're bringing up. Uh, very complex uh, kind of multi-factorial issues that uh, probably f- uh, eventuate in altered mental health. But having said that, when you examine an individual life and life trajectory over time, and you see the absence of play and the effects that that has on mood, on, on uh, choice of, of profession and or job, on friendships, you begin to get a sense that this is a fundamental element, public health element, that's an absolute necessity for human well-being. And when it is disregarded horribly, as, a, as in the Charles Whitman or the murderers, there is a huge toxic effect on society. And therefore, I can't, you know, my life trajectory is such that I see the significance of play and I see the consequences of play deprivation, whether or not there are other major sociologic and cultural and other changes. Sure, they're there, but that doesn't disregard the tremendous importance of play. And, I, you know, I I think if every parent at the time their kid was born and in the first six to eight months, said, who is this person? What is their play nature? How can I foster this? And is there a way that that I want that person to be gleeful and happy? And part of that is watching and observing what produces a, a sense of joy and spontaneous play and then fostering that. So there you know there's you know this is my calling in my life you have a calling as a pastor well I got a nice calling about play and it's it's been really great for me and
0: still works so uh, <laughs> Anyhow, well, enough enough said on that. But. No, there's not enough said. You could say whatever you want. I'm like, great, just keep talking. We, I'll have you just talk about whatever you want. I just, I think you're one of the wisest uh, men I've come across. So I, I value your, your well, words. You're right. great. Very complimentary.
1: You know, I love science. And so part of what's been really fun for me and part of the National Institute for Play is to accumulate uh, – solid, credible reasons to understand the boundaries of what play and play-related things are like. And in that process, one of the questions that Caleb, your associate, asked me in the course of— Caleb? uh, Oh, dirt. Dirt, you mean, for everybody. They they know him as dirt, (laughs) not Caleb. Okay. Anyhow, you sent sent me uh, what is the the single most uh, kind of surprising discovery— and I think the discovery is uh, that the essence of play and play motives is in the subcortex. That means it is not in the highly thinking portion of the brain, and it it produce, produces motivation. And there's all kinds of good evidence that's now showing that that uh, mood alteration and innovation and sense of well-being and the ability to deal with uh, conflict are really sort of subcortical in their wiring and that that is a public health uh, component of, of uh, like nutrition or good sleep and we just don't tend to think of play as being that significant. So to me, the es- part of the essence of play is that it's buried deeply in our yeah. design as human human be- beings, and if we neglect it, we're in trouble.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by AG1. I gave AG1 a try because I was feeling a bit sluggish, not confident I was getting all the nutrients that I felt that I needed, and I thought maybe this is an easy solution. So I drink AG1 in the morning. I love doing the morning. I do it on an empty stomach. It forces me to get 12 ounces of water into my system. I love doing something proactive and aggressive to make me feel better and at least give me peace of mind. AG1 is designed with this kind of ease in mind so you can live healthier and better without having to complicate your routine. Each scoop has 75 vitamins, minerals, probiotics, and whole food sourced ingredients of the highest quality. If you want to take ownership Of your health. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. So go to drinkag1.com slash aggressive life. That's drinkag1.com slash aggressive life to take control of your health. Check it out. that old line, uh, you know, all work and no play makes Johnny a dull boy or something like that. Um, right. I've just found that if someone doesn't have a playful side and if they're not making room for it in their life, I simply don't want to be around them. I'll be around them, you know, and be a nice guy. But they're they're just not fun to be around. Somebody who, who has not learned to play and not take themselves seriously and enjoy the, the melatonin surge or the whatever chemical surge it is, and enjoy the the smiles that come from it. If someone isn't looking for a reason to smile, which is why you play, I just don't want to be around you. You're right on, and and I think you know if you
1: look at our heritage. Going back a few million years, when we were hunter-gatherers and little tribes, we got along with each other when there was a, 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 you know, a, an arrogant adolescent and an old person. They somehow learned through humor and play to survive. So that part of our survival as a species required that we put play into action as a collective part of community. And I think the very spirit you show with your church, I mean, it would be fun to be sitting and listening to you as a pastor because you're yep. full of yourself. I
0: think it's great.
1: <laughs> well, I try. I try to be. Some
0: people are not amused but at it, all. They're not amused I'm
1: kind of full of yourself
0: that I, I, <laughs>
1: I'm i not trying to. There's no sense of know-it-all or arrogance. There's a sense right. of humanity there, which I like.
0: Yeah. Thank you. I I made the, I made the point. I wasn't planning on saying this. I don't know. How many weeks ago was that there? I was preaching several weeks ago and it just came to me. So I said it and I said, Hey, you know, God has a sense of humor. Uh, Why do you think there's farts? I I I don't I don't know. There you go. I just said it, and you're laughing. I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody who doesn't laugh at a fart. No, everybody laughs. We don't appreciate it when it's somebody else's fart and it's in my house. But we all we all laugh. And I just go like, you can't tell me that Jesus and the disciples didn't laugh because they were farting. You just can't tell that 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 happened. And I think for churchy people or just serious-minded people. That kind of thinking is so weird. And I, I just want to say, no, it's weird that you can't see the hard wiring that we all have for humor and play. We've got to embrace it. Well, I've I got to give you a joke that an old buddy of mine sent me.
1: It, it was the picture of two people sitting beside each other, a little kid with his grandfather. And the little kid says to the grandfather, whenever I fart, I laugh. And the grandfather says, Whenever I laugh, I fart. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's that old Jack Nicholson line in uh, Bucket List. He says, Well, I've learned in my age never, never pass a bathroom, never trust a fart, and never waste a heart on, is what he said. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right speaking of joker let's hit uh, two more of your categories one of them is the joker so if i like to be play by being the joker what does that mean well you know i've got a a a couple of friends who are
1: every time they talk it's funny i don't know how they do it and as a guy i don't know real well but i've been to lectures of his at stanford and he's He's well written. His name is Robert Sapolsky. And you can't go to one of his lectures at Stanford, he's a, a neuroscientist, without breaking up and laughing. You know, I don't know where it comes from. And there's somebody like Seinfeld, and you know, there we had and, and at his when he was his manic best, Robin Williams, there were people who were funny and and characters and could make humor out of anything. And, uh, you know, I, 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 uh, make you, you ask kind of the question. It makes me think I got to find a, a few more of those now because a lot of my uh, friends at my age are dropping off and going to the next reward. So I'll, I'll have to yeah. find a comedian or two.
0: There you go. Or, you know, you and I could talk more often and I'll tell you all the fart and, you know, stories I can, and we'll have a good old time because I got a lot of them. Good. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And then you also have the storyteller. So if someone wants to play in their storyteller, what kind of things will they want to do?
1: Well, I have moved from uh, kinesthete to storyteller in my old age because I love to tell my grandchildren and probably anyone who can stand to listen to me. Stories about uh, this and that, the other thing, medicine, medicine, uh, the adventures I've had, so on, so that, and and I think there is an oral history that appears to be part of human nature uh, to pass on to the next generation, so that I think most of us, as we age, are getting good at being storytellers that. Wasn't necessarily a part of our play nature earlier, so you know I, I get some examples that some of the storytellers, you know I've I've been reading a book by Isaacson on Musk and on I on Einstein. Well, he's a storyteller, right? And uh, really a consummate author and storyteller. And you probably can think of people that you know as and I know who who who's Ability to bring narrative into life uh, is a yep. part of, of
0: of human interaction that that is very rich. H- how is the Musk book? I haven't picked that one up yet, but I've read all of Isaacson's other things. I thought his Steve Jobs book was I, I have I haven't read it in, in detail yet. I've got it, but I I I
1: realized that I needed to read his Einstein book because I've tried to understand relativity and I'm not sure I do yet. But he. He makes a stab at that that's remarkable.
0: So It's so refreshing to have somebody who taught at Stanford say they don't understand relatively. But I, I I've had some people say, Oh well, it's you know, time is here and I'm like, Okay, whatever, okay, I don't I don't I don't get it. I don't get it. and not only do I not get it, I don't under I don't get why you are so turned on by it. I think you're, some people just turned on by it so they can feel mentally superior to me. That's that's what I think. Oh, man. I was curious about the the name. I talked about an oxymoron recently. I always smile when I mention the National Institute of Play. You, you don't think of Na, National Institute for Cancer Research, National Institute for Advancement of whatever. National Institute of Play. Tell me how you got that name, what the start of this organization was. It's a pretty aggressive move for you to start an organization around this. Give us the the origin story. You ask an interesting
1: question that I don't know that I've ever answered publicly. But uh, when I was absolutely certain that play was really significant, uh, it was evident that play was considered frivolous and play was considered... Waste of time and play was considered something you did when you when you didn't have responsibilities. So I established a 501c3 called the Center for Creative Adaptability, which is what play does. Mm. It became a little more uh, formal, and so I shifted it finally because I, I I wanted it to be a more honest description to be called the Institute for Play. And then we had a board member who was a a donor who said, I'm not going to be a part of the board unless you have it called the National Institute for Play. So that's that in 1996 is the 501c3 name that we now possess, but it had an evolution. And part of it was the cultural acceptance of play itself. There really has been a huge difference there. The science of play supports it uh, a little like the science of sleep has slowly begun to uh, support sleep studies and sleep centers, whereas uh, uh, play is not there yet, where it's still uh, not considered to be terribly significant in, in most uh, funding and other circles.
0: Your definition for play to a definition just slipped out. I hadn't heard of that clearly before. You said play is creative adaptability. Could you talk more about that? Well, I think that's one of the things
1: that uh, let's talk about your motorcycle ride, for example. What happened when you got through finding that you were not having a highly purposeful uh, anxiety-laden experience, and you get back from your mu- bike ride, and you said you had new ideas and fresh mm-hmm. energy, that's creative adaptability. That's the outcome of of a what a play state does. And in, if you were to look at our educational system, if teachers found the play state in their sh- students, and their own play state in the subjects they were teaching... The contagion of, uh, of that would certainly alter how we uh, observe and experience our educational establishment, in my view.
0: You mentioned when I was trying to make an argument for mental illness and play and you, uh, or lack of play, and you mentioned multifactorial. When you said that, I said, oh, yeah, there, there's a word with five syllables I don't use. And that's why you're smarter than me. But <laughs> so multifactorial, Let's, let, me, let me get multifactorial again and just get your opinion on this. When I hear creative adapt, adaptability, I think this is everything that America is not right now. Wait, people, we're, yeah. people are not creative and we're not adapting to one another. Is, is the reason why there's more political polarization than ever? Is the reason why there's more cantankerousness than ever, more judgmentalism than ever on both sides and all sides? Could it really be that it's because we as Americans don't know how to play and as we're playing less, we're, we know less how to adapt and play well with other people? Is that my am I, am I stretching hey, here?
1: Take a look at Congress. Yes, Do they play with each other and and have poker games and dance with each other or play baseball together? No. No. And do they solve problems? No. No. Uh, This is what it's there for. Part of the variety of human temperaments and spirits require a sense of, of mutual tolerance and cooperation. And part of the way we get there. If if I'm if I find somebody who differs from me politically, but we take a hike together and and let's say it's a steep hill and we're both kinda of old codgers, so we huff and puff and, and complain about how much we ache and pain. By the time we get through with that hike, we have bonded. And there is an emotional yep. sense that of tolerance of the differences. That's part of what play does. And and it does this from subcortical, you know, if I'm a, my neuroscience coming out, it, it does this from subcortical areas, emotionally and physiologically. And it's part of how we as a social species are designed to play. And when we don't, we pay a price. And we've paid a price historically, you know, for many, many millennia. And look what's going on in the world now.
0: Not good. Pretty scary. I've heard members of Congress say, you know, back in the old days, Tip O'Neill, Ronald Reagan, that whole era, people on utter Different sides of the of the political aisle for those of us who are younger they would say they, they would go out at, they'll go out at the end of the week and they'd have some drinks and play some cards together and laugh together and uh, understand each other and then they'd get back to work the next week and make compromise for the country to go forward uh, we're, we're right. not we're not doing that in, in the christian realm there's a there's a phrase that's been I've seen before. It's the families that pray together stay together. I'm not sure I agree with that phrase. The phrase that I've tried to live by is that families that play together stay together. If you if you want your you. yeah if you want your kids to be around you, you don't know to better be playing with them. There's a lot of kids who don't want to be around parents who want to pray with them. But you show me a parent knows how to play with their kids, kids will always be around you. Got it? Yeah. Oh, this, is, uh, this has been an incredibly invigorating uh, discussion, Stuart. Thank you so much. Can I ask you some quick little one-hitters? This is, this is called the lightning round. I ask you a question, and you, wha- bam, like a crack of lightning. You answer real quick in one or two sentences. Are you up for the lightning round? We'll see. <laughs> okay, here you go. I believe in you. I believe in you. These are like falling off a log for you. Here's the first one. Right now, what do you do to play?
1: I swim, I hike, I belong to a men's, men's group where we share our being, which is, is often uh, farts as well as other things. <laughs> uh, I'm a grandfather, so there's great joy in living vicariously through the very successful and, and turbulent lives of my eight grandchildren. So you know, I've got, and I live in a gorgeous area, Carmel Valley, which means uh, it's sunny most of the year, and it's. I'm very blessed to be able to get out and enjoy nature, which is surrounding me. Great.
0: Uh, has your play changed, or how has your play changed as you've aged? Well, I don't run marathons anymore.
1: Uh, yeah. <laughs> a a I. I just decided that uh, the last time I fell off my bike, I'm not going to ride a rough path anymore because I don't handle it as well. So I've changed physically, but I think the interpersonal sense of uh, who is this person I'm talking to, I'm less, I, I hope, less narcissistic and less filled with the doctor knows everything kind of sense, and who is this person that's... Here, uh, you know, even if I go to the uh, grocery store or the pharmacy, it is, who are these people? There is a certain curiosity about the human condition that I didn't fully share enough of in my earlier life. So there's a lot of richness in being an old codger that one doesn't
0: necessarily expect. And not all of it is fun, yeah. for sure. Most unexpected or surprising discovery you made in your years of research? There are two
1: things, I think. The first thing I've already mentioned, which is I thought play would involve a rewiring and learning that is in the human cortex as part of our our what is added to our lives. And learning that play is embedded by nature in In an instinctive sense, and requires uh, tending in the course of a lifetime, and not suppression, is a a continuing sense of uh, wonder and joyfulness, and that leads me to want to evangelize people like you, Mm. (laughs) because you have a great influence on others. So you know that that's. And I, would, I think the uh, acceptance of human mortality and to some degree reveling in the life cycle, even though uh, life is difficult, there is a certain struggle part that's, that's a part of who we are as a species, that uh, instead of uh, reveling in suffering, there's a certain awareness that uh, this is life. Face it, make the most of it you can, take the the deck of cards you've been dealt and and do as best you can with them. That's uh, probably I was more, uh, I want to be a dean of a medical school or a, a department chairman, a personal ambition that was in the way of common sense earlier.
0: All right. My last two questions, and then maybe you've got one for me or something else you want to talk about uh, after that. But my last two questions are first, uh, for parents, like any coaching you'd have for parents of little kids who are growing up in a culture that's not as conducive to play, what what should a parent be doing or not doing to help their kids in this area? The
1: whole That's a, a really tough question because I think you need to Uh, take in the essential temperament, gender, culture, cultural uh, envelope that surrounds uh, parenting and kids. But essentially, uh, what is it that produces a sense of fulfillment and joyfulness on the part of your kid? Can you spot that early? And if you spot it, then can you help provide the environment that nourishes that? uh you know for example i had a uh my one of my grandsons uh i had do a uh, project where he asked uh, 15 of his high school cohorts at the time uh what was the thing that engaged them the most and made them playful and only one of the 15 answered the question well at the time they hadn't thought about it cuz they weren't organized to to think that way, except one who subsequently became a professional ball player, loved playing baseball. But these kids came back to him after he had interviewed them and said, you're asking the question made me question my life, which I haven't done. I've just been pleasing my parents or reacting against my teachers or doing something else. Instead of really looking at what is it I really enjoy and what is it that really engages me." So if we have parents and children and, and uh, the rest of us uh, looking at what is it that uh, engages us emotionally from deep within our intrinsic motivation, I think we'll have a better culture and a better future.
0: What about the adult who's with us right now and doesn't play, uh, in fact, that person if they don't play they may have just turned off the podcast already because they're not interested in it. But let's, let's say someone is an adult. They haven't been playing. They've with, been with us this long. What would you say to an adult who thinks to themselves, yeah, I, I guess I used to do that in high school. Yeah, in college I used to do X, Y, Z. But they struggle right now with finding any way to play. How, how would you get an adult started on a, a fresh play journey? What should their steps be?
1: Well, let me give an example. There was a patient that was referred to me uh, when I was in practice, and she had had a really terrible childhood. She said, came in and said, "Uh, I understand you think play is important. I don't know how to play. I can't play. Uh, My life has been uh, essentially prioritized around uh, dealing with tragedy. And so I thought, oh, boy. Uh, This is going to be a tough one. Uh, Anyhow, found out that she would brighten up when we talked about jazz music so that I arranged for her to get a baton and stand in front of her stereo and conduct jazz that she loved. And while she did that, she had a sense of joyfulness. So she found her play nature. It's there in all of us. Find it. Activate it in your current life, in your life, and prioritize it so that you care about and understand that this is an important part of your personal health and mental and emotional and physical well-being, and your life's going to be better.
0: Well, speaking of personal health, Stuart, you're 90. You mentioned you're 90. I thought, oh, my gosh, 90. Jeesh. Because you're not acting 90, you're not talking 90, you're not smiling like you're 90, you're not thinking like you're 90, you're very, very quick. Do you think that? Uh, do you think this focus on play has enabled you to, to age well? You know, I think it's complicated. <laughs> I picked some good parents. Uh, okay.
1: That's important. I've got an older brother who's a, a good role model, and he's in much better shape physically, and he plays his clarinet beautifully and so on. So I've got a nice role model there, and I, I'm very fortunate. You know, I, uh, it's not always uh, the luck of the draw not to have cancer of the pancreas or something by this time. Right you know i feel very fortunate i do think that uh having a purpose in life and having a sense of of my sense of calling and meaning through play has been very nourishing for me and i'm i'm glad to i mean i've had a a really good time talking with you and feel this is a, a
0: good big part of the day. Thanks. Wow, well, you're welcome. Is is there anything you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you about? Anything you want to say that I haven't given you the opportunity to say? Well, next time you ride your motorcycle cross country, uh, stop by uh,
1: Carmel Valley, and we'll have we'll have some good uh, in depth discussion about you and
0: and. Play. Dude, let me tell you something. I'm not I'm not dicking around. I will I will get a plane ticket, and I will come to your house to spend. Uh, an afternoon with you. Uh, you laugh. I'd uh, uh, be fine. All right. All right. You heard it, Dirt. Uh, no, seriously, I, I you've been you've been an inspiration for me. You've literally you've I don't know anything about your beliefs about God or spirituality. You don't need to. This isn't a God spirituality podcast, but generally it's pretty important to me. It doesn't matter. I'm telling you in this area you have altered my life. You've altered my family's life. You've altered the lives of, um, actually, they don't know it, tens of thousands of people who are on my downline because I've been influenced by your thing of play. It's affected who I am. And so, man, way way to go. Thanks for being faithful for who you are, and thanks for ringing a bell that many people are afraid to ring. We're all the better for it.
1: Well, thanks so much. It's been, it's really uh
0: Heartening and uh, a wonderful experience to be with you. All right. Thank you. And is there any final advertisement you want to give? Like if someone wants to be a part of your work or website, this is just your time to say, go here. I
1: think you, everybody should read the entirety of our website, uh, all 800 articles that we've passed uh, we've <laughs> and the 115 books that we've got, the links that we're now putting in. And they're going to understand play. When they do that, but I think more than anything, uh, they should find their own states of play for themselves.
0: Challenge accepted, Stuart. Thanks for taking the time today. Hey, folks, there you had it. I mean, I tell you what, this is called the aggressive life. This is not called the interesting thoughts life. We've given you some interesting thoughts as it relates to play. But these thoughts are meant to propel you to action. They're meant to propel you to do something in your life. Yeah. The aggressive thing to do would be go play kickball with somebody. Why not? The aggressive thing <laughs> to do would be go finger paint. To do something you didn't do yesterday, last week, last year. Push yourself. And that also means bless yourself. Why don't you do that? We'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Thanks for joining us on this journey toward aggressive living. Find more resources, articles, past episodes, and live events over at bryantome.com. My new books, repackaged edition of the Five Marks of a Man and a brand new Five Marks of a Man tactical guide are open right now on Amazon. If you haven't yet, leave this podcast a rating and review. It really helps get the show in front of new listeners. And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram at Brian Tome. The Aggressive Life is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.